What wonderful counsel these days. Am I on yet? Jason's working the sound back there, so that explains all the glitches, I know. So. But, I, but I know he would do the same for me in front of the congregation. So. What wonderful counsel. Fear not. Fear not. We have a Savior who's overcome. We have a God who's greater than anything that this world can possibly throw against us. Well, it's a joy to be able to preach God's word to you today. Uh, as you can see, we're going to learn today about being God's ministers. Um, Eli asked me to do this last week when we had no idea there was snow, but this turned out to be a great weekend for him not to have to drive down here, that's for sure. But I was led to preach on the topic and light of Eli's sermons over the last three weeks about the marks of a model minister. And although those sermons were intended to have us ponder and think about our search for a permanent pastor and the marks of a truly biblical minister or pastor, they spoke to me in a different way as well. And I saw how those sermons spoke to each one of us and our own qualifications of being ministers of God or priesthood. And I'm sure that some of us were shifting uncomfortably in our seats as he described the characteristics of these different model ministers. Because as we heard over the last few weeks and as we'll hear today, those characteristics should be those of each and every one of us who have bent the knee to Jesus Christ and has submitted to him as our Lord. And speaking of shifting uncomfortably, uh, this is the first time I've done a full-length sermon, so if I go along and I see you shifting uncomfortably in your seats, it will not cause me to shorten it, but I will know next time where I need to be a little bit shorter. So just so you know that, okay? Well, we learned of sacrificial Paul. The ground zero of Paul's ministry was a firm commitment to the Word of God, to declaring the Word of God, not self-help principles, not pop psychology, just the solid rock of the word. And we learned that a minister needs awareness of true sacrifice in his life or her life, an order of service uh, to the Lord that we follow daily, and an awareness that what we do is to build up the church to bring glory to God, not to build ourselves up. And we learned of the need for a source of common joy, which the minister finds not in his worldly circumstances, and surely Paul knew that, but in the connection and fellowship with other believers. And finally, a model minister needs a willingness to share the spotlight, to be able to give away your ministries, to let other people become more as we become less. And so I considered how those things applied to me, not as a minister, but as a part of this body, this body of Christ. And then we then learned about Honorable Timothy, who had a genuine concern for the flock. He was a shepherd. He was Christ-centered. He was a minister as well with a proven track record, battle-tested, as it were. And Eli recalled to mind the words of Jesus that if one is faithful with a little, he'll be faithful with much. And if one is faithful with things, he'll be faithful with people. And finally, Timothy shows a willingness and a willing availability regardless of the physical and spiritual shortcomings or problems, whether they be timidity, lust, poor digestion, or whatever it is. He was there he performed. And finally, we learned about charming Epaphroditus. I love that description. But Epaphroditus had a fraternal or brotherly relationship to other people in his church. People knew him. People loved him. He loved them. This, this fraternal relationship leveled the playing field. There was no social or racial status with him, and that's the way it should be with us. And he had a ministry mindset 
meaning that he had the role of a comforter, a counselor, a friend, a servant, and he was emotionally connected with the flock, okay? And he was willing to embrace trial, willing to go to Rome with Paul, accepting that good health and pleasant circumstances are not the birthright of the Christian. He was a source of joy to others and worthy of highest honor because he was a man of integrity, okay? And that's a tall order. That's a tall order. And thankfully, Eli told us that no one person could fill all those roles because we can't. We all have different things that are going on. But as I listened... I realized, and hopefully you all realized as well, that I could fill some of those roles. There were some of those things that I could do. See, we need those roles filled in this church and in the church of Jesus Christ. And we need them filled not just with the ministers that preach, but with each and every one of us who have gifts that are able to share. So who were all these guys and gals that Paul refers to as faithful and beloved brethren? They were regular people. They were like us. Onesimus was a slave. He was a recent convert. He met Paul in prison. That's where he met him. And yet, how does Paul describe him and all of these other ordinary people that if you go through Paul's uh, letters and who he's referring to, that they are faithful and beloved brothers who is one of you? That's his description of all of them. But they're not seminary-trained people. They didn't go to Bible school. Well, maybe Paul did because he had direct revelation from Jesus, but the rest of them didn't. They all had a grateful heart and a sense that they needed to do something, and they had the willingness to sacrifice to do it. All would have had lives prior to this. They all would have been like us, doing something, until Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ called them to something else that they needed to do as as well. And so today, we're going to talk about how we are ministers and how we fill those roles. How does God prepare us for these roles? And what's our part in fulfilling these roles? Not as pastors, because we, we, li- we live in an age when the pastor is the guy that gets up here and preaches and then he does counseling, whatever else, but, but as ministers for Jesus Christ. And we're going to study Paul's instructions to a bunch of believers in Rome who he had never met, had never visited, didn't know these people from Adam, so to speak, Um, but how they are to live their Christian lives and edify and build up the church. And this is not a sermon about spiritual gifts, although we're going to discuss gifts and using them, but I pray that we're all going to be able to see clearly God's purpose in our lives to serve and build up the church using our talents and abilities as model ministers. So the text for today is Romans 12, 1 to 8, and let's open our Bibles and read and follow along. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray for a moment.
Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would open our hearts, that we would hear what you would have to say to us, and that you would prepare us to be your ministers, that you would prepare us to use those gifts which you have given us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Well, we should note that Paul wrote to this church in Rome about four years before he wrote to the Philippians, because Eli's been preaching out of Philippians, and so we know that um, this took place several years before that, and ironically, when he wrote Philippians, he was in jail in Rome. He had never preached to them except for his jail time ministry. Uh, but he wrote it a few letters, a, a few years after his letter to the church in Corinth. And so we see descriptions of gifts both in the book of 1 Corinthians and in Romans. But Paul's preaching of his purpose of the gift, even though the gifts differed from book to book and what he described, was always the same. What is the purpose of a gift that you get from the Spirit? Well, it is to build up the church. It's not that we feel good. It's not that we're able to develop our musical talent or whatever. It's to build up the church. It's the only reason we get these gifts. And so Romans is Paul's most complete statement of, authority, of, of theology. It's the book in which Paul demonstrates that salvation by, is by faith through the grace of God and not the result of our futile works. In chapters 1 through 3, we see Paul describing man's sin and misery. We, we, we remember those descriptions. We're not going to read them. But then in chapters 3, the end of 3 through 11, the way of deliverance is shown, that we get salvation from that sin and misery through the free work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then in chapters 12 through 16, the rescued believer is shown how, by a life of gratitude to God and helpfulness towards God's children, in fact, towards everyone in the world, man should respond. That's what the book of Romans is about. And so, when verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, we run across that old friend, therefore, which causes us to ask what? What is it therefore, right? We have all previous 11 chapters telling us how man is sinful and corrupt and deserving of condemnation, but how because of the mercy of God he extends grace in the form of faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ. And we go in those 11 chapters from dead to alive, from sinner to saint, from blind to being able to see, from eternity in hell to eternity in heaven with him. And why? Why does this happen? Why does God do this? Well, simply because he chose us. That's the only reason. He chose us. He loved us because his grace granted us faith, and we got it, that faith for some reason, and our skepticism or antagonism was overcome, and we confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior and believed that God raised him from the dead. Why? Why did he do that to each and every one of us? We all have a story, but I can tell you that for myself. I ask myself a lot, why did he do that for me, for me? Because there was nothing to recommend me, and yet he did it because he loved me and because he chose me. I'm here because he chose me. Okay? I can't even believe it sometimes why I would be so lucky and so fortunate and so chosen to be able to do that. And when I think about that, what should my response be? What should our response be? Well, that's the therefore part of it. Because we can't believe it. Therefore, what do we do? Because he's done this for me, I have to do something in return. I just have to. And that's how we end up at chapter 12. And friends, if you haven't experienced that, today's the day to do so. It's a great day to do so. Open your hearts. Pray that God would give you the grace to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and feel this, this gratitude and this transformation. Well, how does Paul tell the Romans to do this, this therefore thing? Does he sternly command them? Does he stand up here and pound things into their head? Does he preach emotionally? No. He appeals to his brothers. Okay? An appeal sounds very legal, very formal, but notice first that he identifies them as brothers or brethren. Now, Eli talked about this love that Paul had uh, for all of these people. Um, And this appeal, listen to how he phrases it in his other letters. Well, in 2 Corinthians uh, 10, 1 and 2, he says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present I may not have to show boldness with such confidence. He begs them. He pleads with them. He's not a stern taskmaster, but a beloved friend and brother pleading. And friends, we're all beloved friends and brothers to someone sitting here in this congregation or someone in our life. We have the ability to do that with people. The Greek word here meaning appeal, some translations say urge, is from the word parakaleo. And the basic meaning of that means to call someone alongside of you in order to help them out. Okay, so you say, come on over here, let's work on that together. We've done that with our kids. Come on, let's do this. And that's what Paul is telling us. And you might remember that word from Jesus' description of the Holy Spirit who's called the paraclete, right? Our divine helper, our comforter, our advocate, our counselor. And Paul is speaking as a human helper to his brothers in Rome. He commands but he gives it by coming alongside as a fellow believer to lovingly encourage them and to fulfill what was already the desire of their hearts. Because many of us want to do something, we don't know what. I'm so grateful, what, what should I do, what can I do? And, and we just need some encouragement, and this is so important for us to lovingly encourage our friends to offer themselves. Paul didn't even know the Romans, but he extended love. How much more? should we do it with the people that we do know and the people that we do love. Friends, we need to urge, plead with those around us. Man, you'd be great at doing this. This is exactly the thing that's up your alley. This is exactly the thing that you like to do. But we need to know the people in order to be able to do that. And that's the other part of Paul's beloved preaching is that we need to know people around us that are sitting in these seats and and get to know what makes them tick and what they like and what they don't like. And so what does Paul urge us to do? Well, the next step is to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, our spiritual worship. What does that even mean, offering our bodies as a living sacrifice? Well, first century Romans would have thought of sacrifices as the killing and burning of an animal to offer up to their gods and return to some sort of favor. Well, The first thing we notice is how Jesus turns that cultural expectation on its head. We don't offer sacrifices to get favor from God. We offer sacrifices because we're grateful about what God has done for us. Same as in the Old Testament. Imagine a pagan and a Jew in the Old Testament talking about the upcoming harvest. The pagan's got to offer a sacrifice to Baal for a plentiful harvest, sometimes even the sacrifice of a child in order to be able to prosper, or the harvest is going to fall. And the Jew just simply thinks of Isaiah 64.4, which says, No ear has heard, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. And all that's required for God to act on our behalf is for us to have faith 
and to wait on him to act. And all he desires is that we be full of thanks and praise toward him. And the pagan at that point says, what? That's backwards, man. That's, but that's how God's way is in the eyes of the world. It's backwards. It doesn't make sense to the world. And now, we need to act, certainly, but act in the spirit. God acts because he loves. We praise because of his actions. And now in this letter to the Romans, Paul tells us how we do that, to offer or present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Well, the word for offer or present is the same word that's used with the priests, placing an offering upon the altar. Okay? Carried the general idea of surrendering something or, or yielding it up, because as Peter says in 1 Peter 2.5, Christians are a holy priesthood. We are all priests. We're being exhorted to perform a priestly act of worship by Paul. We're to present our bodies. Alive, of course, because animal sacrifice ended with Jesus. The only acceptable sacrifice to God is the offering of ourselves. And in the Old Testament, that whole burnt offering ascended to God in the form of smoke and odor and pleasant incense and could never be reclaimed by the person that had offered it up. It belonged to God, and likewise for us as well. It's what Paul is telling us, that when we offer ourselves up, we belong to God. We're not ourselves anymore. Not just making an offering and then stealing it back home with us when I want to go fishing or when I want to do something else, but I offer it up to God and God keeps it. And so what are we to offer? Our bodies. And Paul exhorts those to offer their bodies as sacrifices to God. Now, in this context, he's not talking about their actual bodies, by laying them on the altar, but to the entire personality, which he's already talked about earlier in Romans. John Calvin says, by bodies, he means not only our skin and bones, but the totality of which we are composed. It's our being. It's what we are. Our bodies are how we carry out our purposes. I mean, you know, we are spiritual beings, but we need our bodies to do stuff for other people. We need our bodies to do things. And so it's not just our personality or our humanness, in our Christian bodies that we're to offer, but our entire bodies. And that includes our, the evil longings of our mind, the sins, the passions, the will, all of those things. Because Paul tells us in, earlier in the letter in chapter 7, for while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. And even after his own salvation, Paul saw the different members of his body waging war against the law of his mind and making him a prisoner of law and sin. And it's because our bodies themselves are as yet unredeemed, and they will be redeemed when Jesus Christ comes again and when, uh, when the new Jerusalem comes, but they are now unredeemed. They must be yielded continuously to the Lord. We need to continue to bring them back to the Lord. And that's why Paul tells us in chapter 6, verse 13, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. When we offer up our whole selves, God can make our unredeemed bodies instruments of righteousness if we let him. It's amazing what God wants to do with us if we let him. So we're to offer up our bodies. How can an unredeemed body be a holy sacrifice? Well, before a priest in Israel could, could offer um, on behalf of others, he was obliged to present himself in a consecrated condition. And the sacrifices he offered were to be without blemish. Remember that. 
He washed, he anointed, he put blood on himself sometimes. Um, not magic, wasn't, wasn't a magic thing or anything, but it was a representation of cleanness, of setting him apart. Holy is a reminder of that necessity for the Christian um, that we need to renounce the sins of this life and be committed to a life of obedience to God. It's, I want to keep myself holy. Lord, cure me of my unbelief. When Jesus says to the guy, the guy says, I believe, Lord, cure me of my unbelief. I want to be holy. Help me to be holy because I can't do it on my own. So Paul is telling them this, um, just to be separate and apart, to offer your body as a sacrifice, because the body's not evil in itself. If it were, God would not ask us to offer it to him. It's capable of either sin or righteousness. And if it's offered for righteousness, it's pleasing to God. And so this is what Paul is getting at here, is that for us to offer this living sacrifice of ourselves, we need to be pleasing to God. And so we know that in the Old Testament, the priests and Israelites had offered the best blemish-free lambs. And even so, the prophets talk about how God rejected these offerings. Why? They're done exactly right. Exactly right according to the letter of the law, because the important thing about sacrifice was the condition of the offerer's heart. Psalm 50 tells us, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Okay, Faith, thanksgiving and faith. The writer of Hebrew tells us that Abel offered to God a sacrifice better than Cain. It was because of his faith, not because of what he offered, whether it was an animal or a piece of fruit or whatever else. Likewise, David says in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, these you will not despise. And so that's what the sacrifice is. It's our heart. It's our spirit. The living sacrifice we're to offer to the Lord who died for us is the willingness to surrender to him all of our hopes, plans, everything that's precious to us, all that is humanly important to us, all that we find fulfilling. We need to be willing to offer that up. We can't take some things and lock them in the closet in the back and say, Lord, you can have all this, but you can't have that. That's not what he wants. He wants to have all of us. And when Paul says he dies daily in 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-one, he does not mean that he physically dies, clearly, but that he surrenders all that he is to Christ every day. And that is what it means to be a, holy, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. As John MacArthur says, let us not give to God our second best, the leftovers that mean little to us and even less to him. We need to give him our best. And so what are we to offer? Well, these are found in the great commandment. We offer our souls, our bodies, our minds, and our wills. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. We sacrifice, and we are transformed. We're not to be conformed to this world, he says, by which we mean the sinful, humanistic philosophy of life in this culture, the sarcasm, the criticism, the backbiting, the hatred, the bitterness, all of these things that are going on now in social media and throughout, the, uh, throughout this, this country and this world, or on the other side, the pleasure-seeking life of ease that we're told by the culture to pursue. Okay? These are shallow pleasures at best, but Satan would have us believe that these are the best we can get. What we see here is the best that we can get, but we know that they pale in comparison to the eternal life, which is given to us through faith in Jesus Christ. 
And since we know that, we put those other things off. We're willing to put those other things off. We're not conformed, we're transformed. Okay? Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The word is used by the Holy Spirit to renew our minds, to transform our minds. This is what Paul's referring to when he tells the Colossians to put on the new self. We transform by substituting. If I say to you, think about the number seven. Okay, seven. You got seven in your mind? Seven in your mind? Okay, stop thinking about the number seven. Do not think about the number seven. Well, you can't stop thinking about the number seven. And how do we get to stop thinking about the number seven? I tell you, think about five. Five is a good number. Think about five. And that's what God is telling us as a practical matter. Stop thinking about that. Think about the word, because then you're not going to have time to think about these other things. That's what we want to do to transform our mind, is to do that. And a transformed mind transforms our will, because we do what we think about. We have the will to do what we think about. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, our new will lays aside our own plans and trustingly accepts God's plans no matter what. And it's got to be constant. We've got to do it all the time because, well, we're constantly tempted. We're continually tempted throughout the day. But the product of this transformed mind is a will that does the things that God has declared to be good and acceptable and perfect. And that Greek word perfect carries the idea of being complete, not being like perfect, perfect, but being complete, of something being everything it should be. And we should be everything that we should be in the eyes of God. And that's what our spiritual worship should lead to. And it sets the stage for what Paul talks about next in this text, which is our spiritual gifts. Now, Paul wants us to think of ourselves and of our gifts with sober judgment. Okay? Verse 4 contains the word think, or a variant of it, four times. And it's what uh, the ladies were talking about. With the, the author repeats things that are, that are incredibly powerful and important. He wants us to ponder, meditate, consider, cogitate, spend some time with those little gray cells. Slow down. Because a Christian is not to overestimate himself and think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but he's got to think of himself or herself as he really is. And likewise, he's not to underestimate himself, <clears throat> but make an accurate estimate of himself. To think of ourselves with sober judgment means that we recognize that left to our own devices, we're nothing. We can't do anything good. We're only going to go after those selfish pursuits. But that in Christ, we can be used to the glory of God through the gifts that the Spirit gives to us. We have to humbly assess ourselves. Friends, we do not suffer from low self-esteem. Human beings do not suffer from low self-esteem. Rather, human beings are proud, proud people. And that's the essential attitude of human nature. To be useful to our Lord... We must honestly recognize our limits as fallen men and women, but also our abilities as new creations in Christ, and keeping them both in balance and in proper perspective. And this phrase that Paul uses, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, is not referred to saving faith, because there's only one saving faith, and when you have it, you're justified. But this is related to the measure of gifts that we've received and the faithful stewardship of them. It's the kind and quantity of faith required to exercise our own particular gift. Okay? Because God has given us these gifts, and because God's gifts are perfect, no gift should be neglected or downplayed. You know, it's not like that horrible present you got from your aunt and, and, at your wedding and you hide it back in the closet. Um, imagine if God comes to see you someday and says, where did you put that gift? Like, well, we put it back in the closet because we really didn't like that. We wouldn't think about doing that. But that's what we do. 
You know, we, we, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 are the two central passages in which God talks about, I mean, Paul talks about these spiritual gifts. And the important thing, despite what a lot of self-help books will tell you and Christian books will tell you, it's not that you precisely identify your gifts. You can take a thousand inventories and usually they will come out exactly the way you've predetermined because you're going to say, well, I've got, I cook well, therefore I've got this gift of hospitality or something. It's not about that. It's that you faithfully use these gifts. These are gifts from God, God's gifts. So the recognition of the need to use them should produce humility that we have those. Spiritual usefulness is purely the sovereign work of God. None of it can be attributed to man. It's all about God. And these gifts that we get as a congregation, as a church, are all different, and they complement each other, as Paul has taken great pains to explain, not only here in verses 4 and 5, where he talks about we're all members of the body, we all have a different function, and you remember in 1 Corinthians 10 and 12, we're talking about the hand and the arm and all those things, we need all of those different parts, we all have a different function, everyone sitting here has got a different function, we're not all eyes or tongues or hands or feet, but we're all parts, and we're all essential to the operation of the body, every believer from the newest to the most grizzled veteran, has a spirit-given ability to minister to the body of Christ. Onesimus, who Paul found to be extraordinarily useful to him, was a brand-new believer, became converted in prison. And Paul used him because it didn't matter that he wasn't like Paul had been following the Lord for years and years and years. It's that they have the ability and they were willing to use it. Each part of the body is critical to the proper functioning of the whole. But I will repeat this for evidence. Every one of us here has a gift, at least one gift. And Jesus spoke about this in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, 14 through 30. There the master distributes talents, sum of money, five to one person, two to another, one to the last. And to the person whom had five had been entrusted and the person to whom two had been entrusted used their talents wisely in advancing the master's kingdom, made back more money. And the master rewarded them, saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But to the one who received one talent, he hid it away. He did nothing with it because he was afraid to use it. And the master said, Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, those are sobering words, aren't they? Especially for those to whom spiritual gifts have been entrusted, and yet we don't want to use them for whatever reason. So Paul finally takes us to the place where the rubber meets the road, and his command in verse 6 leaves no room for interpretation. It says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let us use them. Paul doesn't bring the hammer down and alienate his audience, who, as you recall, he's never actually met, so he doesn't know how they're going to respond, but he includes himself in this gentle instructional section of how to live our lives as vibrant and active Christians, let us use them. And there's no choice here. We need to use these gifts. And notice, he's saying everybody must use them, not just the minister, not just the apostle. It's clear that Paul believes that not only ministers, elders, and deacons have gifts, but every believer has one or more divinely bestowed gift or endowment. And these gifts are bestowed according to the grace given to us. And therefore, no one has a right to boast about his gift. It's from God. Whether I play the piano well or I speak well or whatever, that's not me. That's something that God has given for the purpose of edifying and building up the church. Everyone needs to bear in mind that his ability to serve others is a product of God's grace. 
his love for the undeserving. We love because he loved us and he gave us these things. And so Paul goes on to describe seven particular functions arising from these gifts in verses 6 through 8. They include prophesying, rendering practical service, teaching, exhorting, contributing to the needs of people, exercising leadership, and showing mercy. These gifts all point back to verses 4 and 5, where it says, build up the body. Everybody have to build up the body. The need for the body to work together in order to continue to be a healthy body. And so we use our gifts to edify or build up the church so that God and Jesus Christ are glorified. A healthy body is the focus of gifts. Paul encourages Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15 to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved after being tested, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Well, why does Paul spend so much time exhorting and encouraging and prodding the believers in his various churches, and indeed the ministers that he has assigned to use these gifts? Because no gift has value unless it's used. There's no value to it. You know, I read a story once about, uh, uh, someone was talking about the gifts that God tried to give him. Um, and I wonder, as, as I listened to that, how big the warehouse would be that contains all the packages and gifts from God that I didn't accept or pick up. When I say, well, you know, I prayed for this. He's like, you didn't take it, you know, and you look at that. And, and, and it's not meant to cause us to feel bad, but it's meant to make us grasp those gifts and use them. And thankfully, God is patient, merciful, and long-suffering. So as sinful men and women, we tend not to use these gifts. We're made of excuses and fears. We need to be encouraged. And not just by some apostle from 2,000 years ago named Paul who writes us this book and we read and go, whoa, i got to do something about this. But by your friend. We need to be encouraged by our friends. The person sitting next to you right now or behind you right now, the guy standing up here has got to do encouraging. You must do that for others. How often do we see things in another person that they don't see? When you say to someone, boy, you're really great at this. They're like, what? Really? What? Yeah, we need to do that. How will they see unless we help them? How will they see unless we show them? You see, two of the biggest lies Satan will tell us is that we either have no gifts at all, or the church's needs are in an area in which I'm not gifted, right? Oh, you need someone to teach. I'm not gifted at that. I'm really bad. Somebody else, okay? Well, the first statement we know to be a lie because God makes very clear throughout his word that each and every one of us has gifts. And the second is another lie from Satan as well. Andrew Murray, in his book on prayer, says, Spiritual laziness, under the appearance of humility, professes no gifts because it fears the trouble of seeking out the will of God or, when that's found, the struggle of claiming it in faith. Sometimes we don't know what our gifts are because we don't want to have our comfortable existence upended because we know something that we're going to need to do. Well, to sum up, we're all ministers. The characteristics of Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus should exist in each one of us. We should be sacrificial Paul, willing to let the accompaniment, willing to be the accompaniment for the work of the church, with a firm commitment to the word of God and an awareness of true sacrifice in our lives. Like Timothy, we need a genuine concern for the church a willingness, a faithfulness to work even when things get hard and a willing availability regardless of our physical or spiritual shortcomings, problems, work schedules, or whatever it happens to be. And finally, like Epaphroditus, we need a fraternal relationship with others to be a team player who's emotionally connected to the flock, who's willing to embrace trial sharing in the work of the church, ready and willing to fight for the church, a source of joy to others and worthy of highest honor because of our conduct. 
I see we're going to have a potluck finally after many, many months' absence. So maybe at this potluck we can sit next to someone that we don't know that well and find out about them and encourage them because that's what we're called to do. And how do we do all of these things? Well, Paul encourages us to do it by thinking about what God has done for us and how grateful we are for having been rescued from the domain of darkness and transported into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Let us renew our minds by pondering what God has done for us. Let us think soberly about the gifts of the Spirit which have been given to us, and let us use the gifts according to the measure which God has given us. Perhaps it's service, maybe teaching, maybe encouragement, maybe contribution, leadership, mercy, but whatever it is, let's use them, because this church, Christ's church, depends on each and every one of us. James Boyce, in his commentary on Romans, concludes his section on these passages by saying, Paul told Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. And that is exactly what you should do. You have a gift, the rest of the body needs it. You will be accountable for what you do with it. Use it so that one day you will hear Jesus say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with the few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time today to ponder your word, to listen to the wise counsel of Paul. And we pray that you would fan into flames the gifts that you've given to us, that you would transform our minds away from those things which we hold dear in this worldly realm and put our focus on those things that are above and the building up of our brothers and sisters in this church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And we have another song? Or? We have one more song. Thanks.